Hello everyone, welcome to another week of the African Business of Sport podcast with myself, Adam Spiel, and my co-host, Jabu Mtua. Jabu, how are you doing? Doing great, my brother. How are you? Fantastic, exciting episode coming up. Yeah, I am blessed and highly favored, my brother. I cannot wait for us to get this conversation done with. It's really interesting looking at how in episode seven, we spoke about broadcasting and sports um, media within the African space. So yeah, exciting conversation ahead. Jabu, what do we have for our audience today? So this is the second installment of our five-part series titled The Business of the FIFA World Cup, which is specifically based on the book, The Business of the FIFA World Cup, which was edited by Professor Simon Chadwick, Dr. Paul Widdop, Christos Anagnostopoulos, and Dr. Dan Parnell. Brilliant insights and feedback that we got from our audience in the past week. Seems like the first episode was really enjoyed by many, many people um, from over 25 countries now, which is pretty crazy, the amount of listeners from different countries we have now, Adam. So it's exciting to present the second episode. And the chapter that we will be reviewing today is chapter 15, written by Dr. Gerard Akindis, and it is titled Broadcasting and the FIFA World Cup Privatization and Technology. What would your first um, brief review of this chapter be, Edom, just before we dive into it? As a sport fan, as somebody who has followed the World Cup since 2006 and someone who consistently follows the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, the um, Italian Serie A, and then the French League One, I'm really, really happy with the fact that I got to understand the journey through podcasting with how it initially started with pre-recorded games, which were scarcely available in only a few regions within the world, to how the technologies that developed over time enabled us to have a truly global World Cup where people from almost every corner of the world gets access to watch the game. In the end, we will review the power of some of the existing top broadcasting brands within the sports sphere that will be working very hard during the World Cup and providing access to the exciting game. So really and truly for for me, it was like a lesson in journalism, getting to understand how broadcasting came about, the steps that FIFA took to taking advantage of it and and exploiting its benefits and really getting to understand that there was a time where people would have never seen the World Cup if not for the fact that technology became possible. So it's a really good history lesson. Yeah, and it just shows that we are definitely living in a completely different, completely different generation because I won't lie, I chuckled a little in disbelief when I read that in the very early days of the FIFA World Cup, especially with the Uruguay edition in 1930 and later on with the one in Italy and France during that decade, you could see the World Cup several weeks or months after it in cinemas and movie theaters. were pretty fascinating, really, to know that the World Cup was not produced or it wasn't distributed like it is today on our TV screens. Imagine living in a time where you could only see or you could only find out about the World Cup results of the games several weeks or months afterwards. 
but that was the early years of the FIFA World Cup and TVs. I mean, Jabu, I, I, I cannot agree more with you. You know, people of our generation and even the generation to come, we tend to take for granted the fact that we have easy access to live score, we have easy access to streaming, we have easy access to radio and television broadcasting where, you know, sometimes when we're bored, we can go and watch, watch a game that has been already played. We really take these things for granted because we were born into a generation where it started off being the norm. Like you said, I cannot imagine watching the World Cup three months down the line. You know, it's <laughs> all your screaming will be relevant because you probably would have seen the winner of the World Cup on the news somewhere, right? But we now have it readily available live. So it really shows you the power of live games. And when I think about it from a financial perspective, the incoming of technology making games live increased FIFA's, um, you know, um, hold on the rights and it made them powerful in determining that, listen, because you people want to watch these games and we are the ones making it available to you, you'd have to pay X amount of money, which would then benefit them. So in the book, you'd realize that for two separate World Cups, different amounts of money were paid by different broadcasting organizations in order to have access it, access to it as per their existing technology. So we may take for granted the fact that we can watch games on our phones now, we can watch on our TVs, our laptops, but really to appreciate what we have, it's imperative that anybody who is a serious sports fan would read this book and get to experience and appreciate the journey through history. I couldn't agree more. And that's a perfect segue to what we're going to speak about next, which is post-World War II, which was the time for huge innovations in FIFA, but also in live football broadcasting. The first FIFA World Cup, which was televised and broadcasted, not only in Europe, but also in the United States, was the 1954 World Cup in Switzerland. That was the first time we really had a strong contingent of broadcasters, which was mostly public service broadcasters, who acquired the rights to World Cups and showed the games to their local audiences. This is where we learn about the European Broadcasting Union, which was one of the biggest players. If you think of Sky Sports and Bean Sports today, the European Broadcasting Union, especially with the FIFA World Cup, was a huge player. I mean, they were the first to truly give the World Cup the standing and the global reach that it truly deserves when you look at this, the growth and the progression that it's made all these years ahead. But the European Broadcasting Union, an absolutely significant role in almost teaching the world how to broadcast live football on TV, although that was many, many years ago. We can take so many lessons from the fortitude, really, and the foresight that the European Broadcasting Union had in looking at football and really acknowledging it as a premium sport and a sport that is worthy to be shown on TV. Because at that time, Eden, there wasn't much happening on TV. I mean, that's very true, Jabu. And at that time, too, one will consider that these broadcasting organizations put themselves in a situation where in order for them to give very good quality games, right, they had to make sure that they invest in infrastructure within the stadia, right? So it became um, a partnership journey from the very 
get-go where they say that, listen, we want to give the very best to our, our European fans because at that time, broadcasting had grown within both Western and Eastern Europe to facilitate a World Cup where they would enjoy it very well. So in order to do that, they started investing in the stadia, which made that, which meant that FIFA also invested money into infrastructure. So you can see that the inner workings or the activities that we may take for granted today or may see as commonplace today started at a point where they were using lessons learned and over the years they have perfected it. So it's really that journey which if you open your mind to wanting to understand business from a very, you know, um, initial point of view where you have no idea, you have no lessons learned, you're new to this, but then you keep experimenting, you will get to a point where you may peak with your activities and then it only becomes a forward-thinking gradual increment like we see with organizations like BBC, Sky Sports, ITV as well. Going back to the EBU, the European Broadcasting Union and just the role, the significant role that they had in the commercialization of the broadcasting rights to the FIFA World Cup. In 1962, so the World Cup in Chile, they negotiated the rights for the delayed broadcasting of matches. So at that time, there was no infrastructure that was available for transatlantic broadcasting, as Dr. Akindis explains here. So what would happen is that you'd get the feed, but it would probably be delayed. There was no broadcasting lines or the infrastructure that was needed to get live pictures from Chile all the way back to Europe and all the way back to the United States of America. But what the EBU did was still buy those rights for about $75,000 for the 1962 World Cup delayed broadcasting rights. So that's uh, another category of rights that definitely doesn't exist today because we have all the technology and infrastructure to make it happen as soon as you want. Going on to the globalizing of the FIFA World Cup and the beginning of what is termed transatlantic television broadcasting, a key event that happened was the launching of the Telstar satellites all over the world, which enabled the global coverage and the global production of television and broadcasting for sport. Telstar came in just before the 1966 FIFA World Cup which is acknowledged as a marking moment in the history of the FIFA World Cup, especially when it comes to broadcasting rights. I quote here from the book, to some extent, the 1966 World Cup deserved to be regarded as the key moment in the globalization of football because what happened was new technologies like the launch of Telstar, many more broadcasters expanding their audience beyond a limited number of countries and the increased popularity of football were instrumental to this change. So 1966 World Cup in England, not only as we discussed in the previous episode, was so important for, for example, having a mascot, but for the broadcasting rights of the FIFA World Cup, it was absolutely massive. Adam. You know, that was a transitioning phase into what we now experience as transatlantic you know, broadcasting, where if the World Cup is to be held in any corner of the world, you can watch it from any corner of the world because now there are multiple satellites out there that communicate with each other. You know, the top um, broadcasting organizations like ITV, Sky Sports, BBC, Super Sports in Africa, Being Sports in the Middle East, all of these have satellites which communicate with each other and enable the, sh the, the broadcasting and streaming of matches 
from that of FIFA. And, you know, FIFA itself has its FIFA TV platform, FIFA Plus TV platform, where games can also be streamed from there. So it shows you that at every point in time, the countries which were superpowers and relevant at that time, putting a lot of money into developing infrastructure that will enable the World Cup to become bigger. So people really took the World Cup very seriously. That is why when I see the other bidding that is going on now, especially the bidding that went on in 2010 for South Africa to win the, to win the rights to host the World Cup, it's a really huge deal. You know, countries take a lot of pride in hosting the World Cup because it shows their power, their soft power. It shows how good they are. And it's an opportunity for them to show that they are forward thinking with their approach to technology, with their approach to sports. And really and truly, they can be part of the global leaders and decision makers when it comes to mega sporting events, which is truly fascinating to see. Yeah, and the 1966 FIFA World Cup in particular was an absolute turning point for that. Not only because the EBU forked out $800,000 for the rights to the 1966 FIFA World Cup, but because the 1966 FIFA World Cup was described as the first globally watched World Cup. So a combination of you know, individuals or markets rather who got the live feed of the broadcasting of the World Cup and those who would watch those dreaded theater, cinema, uh, documentaries of the World Cup months or even weeks later for them to truly know what actually happened. But also the 1966 World Cup was significant because it was the first time that FIFA took control of the broadcasting rights, which became revenue stream for the governing body. So while we were speaking, again, going back to last week, a brief history of the FIFA World Cup where FIFA's only revenue stream was a four-year cycle of the World Cup. When we get to 1966, this is a turning point for FIFA because now they have huge cash inflows from the broadcasting side of their product. How massive is the making or the production of those huge monies when it comes to the production and the broadcasting of the World Cup for FIFA, an organization at the time, which didn't have all the money like it has today? I mean, Jabu, during the World Cup period, even prior to the World Cup period, when you're having... Um, the qualifiers here in Africa, we see how much super sports invest into the adverts, right? To raise the awareness of the World Cup. I've been, I've been seeing, at least for the last two years, I've been seeing a lot of content around the World Cup, be it with games, be it with podcasts, be it with short ads. And even right now, DSTV, for every Premier League, for every sports event that I watch on DSTV, I see the ad constantly coming today, telling us that they're going to provide all 64 games to so getting tuned. And all of that means that, the, all, all of that tells us that they really value the FIFA World Cup because they know that the global audience, in fact, especially the audience here in Africa, and we will get to that, get into the end of the conversation, the audience here in, in Africa are hungry to watch the games, right? And it, it is only imperative for them to, provide this thing to us when they can because they have the technology to do so and FIFA is the only one who's providing it because they are the ones in charge of it that shows you the power that FIFA has that shows you the power the FIFA World Cup has because people are willing to have contracts with them where every World Cup they are providing this every World Cup I, I watched my first World Cup 
2006 on DSTV and the subsequent World Cups I've watched on DSTV. And I know I know the, for, for a fact that Super Sports isn't going to stop giving us access to the World Cup anytime soon. So that that tell you how powerful FIFA is and, and, and the position that they play in the kind of negotiations and upper hand they would have when it comes to giving access to the media rights. Couldn't agree more. And just to reinforce your point there from the experience of, you know, someone who lives in South Africa and has a close relationship with super sports in that there are literally even huge billboards across the country and across my area, really in Johannesburg of Qatar 2022 World Cup live on super sport, catch all 64 games live on super sport, literally Everywhere you go around Johannesburg, you see these huge billboards with Supersport and DSTV really marketing this out. So doesn't that just go to show the importance that the FIFA World Cup has in Africa, but also for a broadcaster as big as Supersport, as we'll get onto the media rights overview, because you see their presence across the entire African continent. But the importance that DSTV and Supersport place on the FIFA World Cup to really entertain the audiences during these times is significant. Facts, Jabu, that is real facts. And I'm just glad that I have access to DSTV at every point in time. I don't, I don't know what I've done, you know, if I wouldn't have the opportunity to watch the World Cup at my convenience, be it on the go or be it at home. So that, that shows you the power that organizations, broadcasting organizations would want to develop in order to reach the certain level that FIFA has reached. And it's it's exciting times for the incoming broadcasting organizations that would come up as a result of development over the years. And then for those who are the giants within the industry. So Dr. Ikindis speaks about the boycott that was led by Ghanaian President Kwame Kruma, who, you know, absolute legend when it comes to African politics because he was one of the first presidents after the decolonization process was happening. And Dr. Akinna spent some time there just speaking about the effect or the lack of effect of the African boycott from the FIFA World Cup in 1966. Let's go to global television broadcasting of the global FIFA World Cup. So by the time 1966, the World Cup had grown and after the tournament in 66, there was a lot of optimism about the financial potential, really, of the FIFA World Cup. Because until 1990, or until 1966 in England, rather, we truly didn't see the power that the FIFA World Cup could have. So this was an incredible time to really assess how FIFA would now go on into the future. And 1970 FIFA World Cup was an important turning point as well because it just went on to emphasize the importance now of an audience that is going to watch the FIFA World Cup in order to justify the money that has been put across to acquire those rights. And the European audience in particular had really come out as an audience that is continually supporting the World Cup, although at the time, really, it was only between Europe and the United States Many other regions around the world would get the World Cup through documentaries. Havelanga, who we spoke about last week, the legendary FIFA president in, in my mind, just due to my readings on him very recently and the effect that he had, especially 
when it comes to African teams, the impact that he had in integrating African teams into the World Cup was absolutely massive. And what he did was launch a campaign for the full integration and recognition of the Global South and a business transformation of the organization. So getting more African teams to be on TV now, getting more African teams to be able to benefit from the broadcasting rights that were rapidly growing in, in their value, having African teams and football federations, which at the time, straight after decolonization, we clearly didn't have the infrastructure and the skill and the technical expertise and the governance levels of our football like our counterparts in the global north. So for African countries to be integrated and benefit from the growth and evolution of football at the time was, I think, one of his biggest successes. Jabu, you know, when I think about this from a more of a leadership and management, management point of view, I see that the success of the FIFA World Cup and FIFA through the broadcasting journey came about as a result of the kind of leadership that we see. Havelange realized that in order to make football truly global, in order to make the World Cup an event that is craved by many across the globe, you have to bring in all the necessary stakeholders and have them have a, have a piece of the pie. You know, we see that right now with Dozen and how they've acquired rights to the female um, Champions League in Europe and they are making it free to their audience on YouTube. That is powerful because what it means is that now they can track the organic growth of the people who watch the games on YouTube and use it as a stepping stone to then come and say that over the period of this X amount of years, we notice a 15 or maybe a 25% growth in the viewership of the Women's Champions League in Europe across YouTube and across our other platforms, right? So you need the right kind of leaders to make the right kind of decisions so that at the end of the day, they utilize the broadcast, they, 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 they utilize the resources Dozen could have said that, hey, listen, if you're going to watch on YouTube, you probably have to pay maybe £2.50 or maybe like $5, right? But making it free for the world to access has its qualitative benefits in that now you're putting the women's game out there and telling people, come and watch, come and watch, come and watch. When you get to a certain level and we know that we, we can retain you, then we'll improve it. I bet you all these broadcasting monies which are paid and which are currently being paid by some of the biggest broadcasting organizations come through because they know for a fact, DSTV knows for a fact that when they go and strike a deal with FIFA for the World Cup, they are short the viewership that they will get across the African continent because they know that they've had viewers who have retained their viewership over the period of time. They started making it possible for them to watch it. So it shows you the kind of leadership which is essential to fast track, let's say, the process, right? And broadcasting only really and truly became what it was for FIFA right now because of the leadership of Havelange. And, you know, God bless his heart wherever he is. And we're really grateful that African teams were added, African teams were being given the opportunity to participate. And then now, color came through. You mentioned color. I really take for granted the fact that I can watch a football game in color. I can't imagine watching black and white. I went to YouTube a while back and I was watching clips of the 1966 World Cup. I was like, what is this? How 
how can you enjoy this as much as we enjoy exactly. what we have right now? But yeah. you know, during those days, they saw it as a huge deal because it was a build up on what was existing before. So we see that as the years go by, different content, different material, different technology enables fans to have a much better viewing experience. I be I personally believe a time will come where you and I can access FIFA World Cup games, especially the final, from a VR headset wherever we are in the world. So we may not even necessarily need any broadcasting um, organization anymore, or FIFA can have partnerships with these broadcasting organizations for them to fast-track technologies within VR so as to make it better, nicer, and more inclusive. Especially, think about this, if you have a fan who is sick at the hospital, right? And who is somebody who regularly goes to the stadium to go and engage with games, but can't go to the game because they're sick. If they have a VR headset, they will be able to enjoy the game as though they're in the stadium. And these are the kind of technologies that broadcasting organizations, I personally believe, would invest in as we see the development of the global game. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, more and more innovations with technology and the privatization of broadcasting came across. Initially, though, mostly the games at the World Cup were televised on public service broadcasters. So that would be the national you know, TV station that would get those rights and importantly, classify them under free-to-air. Free-to-air was you know, the very usual way for people to watch sports, especially outside of the United States and Great Britain, where they had an earlier penetration of private pay TV companies that would, you know, charge a subscription or you have to buy a certain decoder in order to watch the game. But mostly, especially in the global South in Africa and Asia, free-to-air was the way to go for many, many governments that were, interested in giving the opportunity for their people to watch the World Cup. And it's still a case today where we are free to air and you're able to watch the World Cup and not pay for the, 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 the pleasure and the privilege of having to watch the biggest sporting event in the world today. So 80s, there was a new innovation. So this was DTH and that translates to direct to home broadcasting with the introduction of communication satellites, more technologies were, were, were introduced and that really enabled FIFA to continue growing their broadcasting rights values because not only now were you getting interest and competition from the public service broadcasters, but there were pay TV broadcasters that were slowly coming in and acquiring those rights in order to commercialize them and then sell them through some pay TV subscriptions, which today is how we watch our football, Adam, I suppose. Satellite technology, another huge innovation as well that came across that Dr. Kinder speaks about. It's really important also to just briefly recognize the media rules and the importance they had in ensuring that there was a regulatory framework in ensuring that, for example, a FIFA World Cup has to be classified under free-to-air. Right, We can't have people or our populations, especially in poorer countries, having to pay to watch the FIFA World Cup. So I think that is, it shows the importance of 
um, public service broadcasters in that it enabled everyone as much as possible in the world. And I think that still happens today as we are going to show in the media rights overview that efforts are still being made to ensure that the FIFA World Cup is a free tournament and that almost everyone, if not everyone in the world, is able to access the tournament and enjoy the brilliant football that we watch. I know in South Africa, we have the SABC and the SABC regularly broadcasts FIFA World Cup games, obviously in World Cup years. And it ensures that people and the poorest in our society are not burdened by the fact that they have to pay in order to watch the tournament. So I think free-to-air is absolutely here to stay. We should ensure that everyone is able to watch football. Everyone is able to enjoy this festival that is the World Cup and that everyone has the dignity, which is how it's been described, especially in South Africa, when it comes to broadcasting sports, advancing the dignity and equality in everyone being able to access the FIFA World Cup. Sports on Jabu. And like I said, it, it, it all boils down to the kind of leadership. You know, people say free to air is good because you don't pay for it. But I believe that it's a strategy which I term as freemium, where imagine you and I get to watch a World Cup game for free. We don't pay for DSTV subscription, right? We will actually go and interact with other materials, other resources which are connected to the World Cup. So let's take the 2010 World Cup, for example. If I watch a game on, on the TV for free and I see the Vuvuzelas being used, I see people holding the uh, stuffed versions of the mascot. I see people having the footballs that are being used and people wearing the jersey. I'll most likely want to go and get a souvenir like that, right? And in purchasing such a souvenir, FIFA will make money out of it. So FIFA has then diversified its revenue streams to saying that, yes, free to air, but we know that people, even the poorest of people, will get one thing or the other to symbolize that they were part of the World Cup journey, right? I'm sure if you go to a lot of South African homes right now, you'd find a Vuvuzela, which symbolizes the contribution and the integration and the participation of the 2010 World Cup in South Africa, one which will last a lifetime. You know, the price of a Vuvuzela is nothing close to what you pay for your DSCV subscription, but having to watch it for free, you've bought a Vuvuzela, FIFA has made money from it because we realized that FIFA took advantage of the merchandising approach, which was used in the 1966 World Cup, which really shows that the leaders at FIFA are really smart by using a freemium model. 100%. And that is actually one of the points of tension when it comes to the World Cup in Qatar. Because as you know, B in Sports is the media company that gives live broadcasting of the FIFA World Cup as it's going to do next month. However, there is no free-to-air platform in the Middle East. So if you're in the Middle East right now, you have to get a B in sports subscription in order to watch the World Cup. I think that's certainly something that is going to be adjusted. I believe, and you know, you can actually hold, hold me on my word on this. I absolutely believe that there is going to be some sort of plan or arrangement to ensure that there is a free-to-air platform or B in sport just make their World Cup coverage free. So I've been doing 
the Middle East as a regional study in my international relations classes. And you just realize the inequality, the wealth inequality that exists there. And when you put it in this context, you will have a huge population of, of, of Middle Eastern individuals or, or Arab, Arab individuals who are living in the Middle East who are excluded from watching the World Cup, which is not something you want to see as much as possible as it's going to be the first ever World Cup that's going to be held in the Middle East, as many people, and especially as many Arab people from the Middle East must watch it because this is their World Cup as well. I think what FIFA will do is that in order to mitigate such a setback, they probably would partner with one of the existing um, broadcasting companies that are in and around the Middle East, right? And then have their FIFA TV broadcasting and streaming available through it. Uh, so at the end of the day, being sports will not just be the the only, you know, um, superpower there. Right. Here in Africa, although we have DSTV, as we'll come to analyze in the end, there are other big organizations that are providing free to air and which through the conversation that we have tend to or may seem as though they have the upper hand. But once FIFA can look at these things and then work around it, being sport wouldn't feel as though they have the upper hand and it would then become truly free to air. Couldn't agree more. That is FIFA Plus. FIFA Plus, definitely a way to mitigate any sort of unfairness when it comes to the broadcasting of the World Cup and really broadening the reach to as many people as possible for us to enjoy what is, I think, going to be an incredible festival of football. Let's jump to the media rights overview for the FIFA World Cup in Qatar in particular to really get a look of who are the licensees, who are the different media rights companies or organizations who are going to be showing the FIFA World Cup. We will specifically look at Africa for now and have a look at the different players who are going to be crucial to a successful World Cup, at least for the African viewer. So some of the names I'm seeing here, Adam, and you can just chip in as much as you want. Be in sports, incredibly key in North Africa, in the whole MENA region. Be in sports is a huge, huge player. We can also see New World TV having a free-to-air access as well. There you go. We can also see RFI, which is Radio France International, and Jabu Lasli. Supersport, which is also synonymous with DSTV. So if Adam and I um, say DSTV or Supersport, they're interchangeable. It's the same thing. So Supersport's also a huge player in the media rights space in Africa. Yeah. Jab, what are the four platforms which would use to analyze um, the media rights available to the African continent? Being sports, I feel you can't go into a conversation around media rights in Africa and not speak about being sports. They have such a huge monopoly, as we spoke about in episode seven, where we were discussing the geopoly between super sports and being sports. I mean, when we're looking at this um, document, which we will put on the show notes for you to have a look at yourself, the amount of African countries that have being sports and super sports in Africa just goes to show and reinforces our point in that there is a duopoly that is pretty clear in the media rights scene in Africa, Edom. Being sports has access to 35 
of the 54 countries on the African continent, which is roughly 65% of the share of the broadcasting pie. However, it's easy to, you know, disregard them by saying that they don't really have so much hold, but their hold is within the northern region of the African continent, which is somewhat part of the MENA region, as we know. So having influence in Nigeria, in Egypt, in Morocco, and other Arab-speaking countries in the continent, which really shows that being sports wants to find a way to infiltrate a continent which is largely held by super sports. Jab, what do you think? Absolutely. And I think this is another uh, battle between the two when it comes to the FIFA World Cup and the amount of territories that they're offering the World Cup just goes to show that they are the two biggest players in African sports broadcasting. And I think that is only going to grow in the future. And it's going to be fascinating to see how this boxing, boxing match between B in sports and super sports, really, that has been going on for years now, how it continues to, to, to progress, but also which premium rights they acquire over the next few years. And maybe, say, B in sports gets a really premium sport or right that the super sport doesn't get, or super sport does the same way they get a premium right where B in sports is not able to acquire it. There's going to be many other phases to this duopoly between B in sport and super sport. But one thing that's really positive before we wrap up, Edom, is that New World TV seems to be ubiquitous across this entire document when it comes to Africa. So I'm pretty hopeful and positive that if that is the case and New, New World TV does have free-to-air rights in TV, in radio, in mobile, and in internet. So there's so many different platforms that African viewers in these countries like Benin, Botswana, Burkina Faso, Burundi are going to be able to engage with the World Cup in a way that suits them, in a way that is inexpensive to them, in a way where they can use their mobile phones instead of going somewhere else and spending money, but in a way that is, again, everyone has the equality and the dignity, really, to be able to be involved in such a huge cultural event for the world. One thing that we also have to consider with um, the access to the broadcast empire is the language barrier. So I'm pretty sure it's very easy for being in sports to be the big boy within the MENA region in Africa because of the access to the Arab commentary with the FIFA World Cup, as opposed to super sports, which has more prominence within the Western, Eastern and South part of Africa because of the access to both the English language, to Swahili, to Tril, as I saw recently, and to other languages that are spoken within this region. So the language plays a very huge role in the access that the broadcasting organization can have. Another thing to, to also consider is the package that is, is available. I'm thinking that although New World TV's free-to-air um, access may be 78% across all four, which is radio, TV, mobile, and internet, the package may be such that they may be only be able to give two games a day, right? As compared to New World TV's pay-per-view, which may give you access to all games per day, as we see with super sports, given access to all, all games per day. So that is some of the 
some some of the the packages that these broadcasting organizations tend to have with FIFA in order to bring the World Cup to us. I mean, on the radio front, there's no other player across the continent apart from Radio France International because of how big France the French influence is on the continent and the fact that really and truly radio commentary doesn't really hit the bill as compared to TV, as compared to mobile, as compared to internet and as compared to streaming because people would rather want to watch than to listen, to have a much better or if I should say elevated experience with the World Cup. Yeah, but in cases where and hopefully this doesn't happen, but there's issues in terms of accessing TV and mobile. It's good that there is Radio France International that is going to be able to give the World Cup to individuals who may not have a TV. I mean, this is our reality in Africa with all our socioeconomic problems. And it's not a surprise that not everyone around the continent has a TV set in their home. So those that do have an access to a radio or access to devices that are able to function with the radio, they will still be able to watch the World Cup or they will still be able to engage rather with the World Cup. And I think that was one of the main lessons I got from this chapter is that there's so many different ways, especially, you know, we went back to the 1930s when you used to watch the World Cup two, three weeks or even months after the, the World Cup had ended to 2022 now where there's going to be new ways there's going to be first timers in terms of platforms that are going to be hosting the world cup like phones mobile tablets different devices that are unorthodox in terms of watching sports and consuming sports and again another plug to episode seven where we speak about the growing and the changing habits of the consumption of sports this is going to be a testing plate for broadcasters, sports executives, federations to really track and assess how the product is consumed so that we can use that information and apply it to our own tournaments on the continent. Well, Sir Jabu, and when I'm projecting forward, I see that the internet is going to have the upper hand with regards to the relay race because now we see with Meta, we see with VR, we see with people wanting to enter the virtual reality space the internet is going to make that possible. So a time is going to come, you and I are definitely going to have the opportunity to watch a World Cup game through VR and even increase our experiences. Jabu, it's been an exciting conversation just going through the whole journey and basically the growth of broadcasting and streaming of the FIFA World Cup. One thing I've learned and I've taken away with me is that we should never limit the possibilities that technology can enable us to experience better World Cups, to experience better games. Because for us, for instance, in the 2014 World Cup, for us to be able to experience and relate to that record goal that was scored by... Mario yes, Gotze scored the, the good. The only way you and I can relate to a Mario Gotze goal like that and talk about it for years to come is through watching it live. And we could only watch it live through the fact that DSTV had given access to exactly. World Cup 
world-class broadcasting. So for us, we need to open our minds to the possibilities and invest more into the broadcasting space. And who knows, during the next World Cup that will be held in Africa, that is when VR may be inculcated and that will really push Africa on the global stage for sports development. Jabu, thank you very much once again for this conversation. To our listeners, we are glad that you've tuned in for this episode do send us your feedback. Would like to hear from you. Would like to know what you think. And let us know how you are enjoying the book. It's been a wonderful conversation. Have you? Goodbye. God bless. And talk to you next week.